On this week's 51%, we discuss the inflammatory condition endometriosis. What is it, what does it look like, and how is it treated? Sarah Digby shares her experience. I was down for the whole rest of the day, unable to walk, unable to do anything, and just an excruciating pain. And we also speak with Linda Griffith of the MIT Center for Gynepathology Research about how engineers are working to better understand the disease. Coming up on 51%. I was standing around like one of those girls I had seen in a movie. The whole world was a movie back then. I had my sunglasses on, I wanted to be seen without seeing Shiloh Lita. I wasn't really in it. I didn't really get it. You're listening to 51%, a WAMC production dedicated to women's issues and experiences. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jesse King. Most of us are aware that it's Women's History Month, but the month of March is also an important time to discuss women's health. It's Endometriosis Awareness Month, a time to read up and spread the news on a condition that impacts roughly 1 in 10 women, or people with uteruses, worldwide. Despite those numbers, endometriosis has historically been written off as a women's disease, a taboo topic of conversation, or simply part of being a woman in general. After all, no one enjoys their period. So there's still a lot we don't know about it, and that's what we're focusing on today. The big questions, what is it, what does it look like, and how is it treated? To use the definition offered by the Endometriosis Foundation of America, endometriosis is when tissue similar to the inner lining of your uterus, called the endometrium, is found outside your uterus, where it shouldn't be. Typically, endometriosis is found on organs like the uterus, the fallopian tubes, ovaries, bladder, etc., But in extreme cases, it can advance outside the pelvic cavity to other areas, like your appendix or even your lungs. The problem is that this tissue still acts like the tissue inside your uterus, so it bleeds with your monthly menstrual cycle. This can result in painful inflammation and lesions that contribute to symptoms including painful and abnormal periods, bowel and urinary issues, neuropathy, infertility, and more. Our first guest today is Sarah Digby, a 32-year-old former education specialist living in New York City. Digby grew up in San Antonio, Texas, where she says her access to sex education was extremely limited. Even at home, it wasn't typical for her family to talk about their bodies, so she grew up knowing very little about her own. But the moment she started getting her period at age 12, she knew something was off. The way that I was experiencing periods, the way that I was bleeding, the amount of pain that I was in, it was nothing I had been led to expect I would experience from the, you know, preteen magazines I'd read and what cramps would feel like. It would be really bad the first couple of days of my period. And I had long periods. They lasted about seven or eight days. They'd kind of abate and then I'd have, you know, some pain towards the end. How could something so painful be so accepted and natural, even though that's what people were telling me? To be fair, I was a dramatic teenager, but I was also in a lot of pain. Digby says her period caused her to routinely miss school during her high school and college years, but that didn't seem to concern many of the people in her life. She never got used to the pain, but over time, Digby says she basically learned to live around it, or at least in her words, shut up about it. By the time she moved to New York and started seeing a new OBGYN in 2008, it didn't even occur to her to mention the regular pain she was experiencing. But then the cysts started happening. One of them happened on a plane uh, right before takeoff while I was on a layover. I passed out and had to be pulled off the plane by EMTs. Even then, no one could, no one could figure out what was, what was wrong. They just uh, 
the whole that that's a whole other story in and of itself. I got no, no proper or appropriate medical care whatsoever in that experience. At the time, I was actually a teacher. And one time it happened on the sub, I had a cyst, an endometrioma rupture on the subway, didn't know that's what it was, barely made it into the school, and then had to have someone cover my class because I was down for the whole rest of the day, unable to walk unable to do anything and just an excruciating pain. Um, I was quickly becoming pretty disabled. What Digby was experiencing were rupturing endometriomas, blood-filled cysts that typically form on one or both of the ovaries. Endometriosis is currently classified in four official stages according to morphology, basically how many lesions and cysts you have and where they are. At this point, the pain flare-ups around Digby's periods had died down. She was on the IUD, so she wasn't getting her periods. But over time, Digby's lesions had increased in number and gotten deeper. And with the added cysts bursting multiple times a year, her pain was no longer really tied to her menstrual cycle. It could hit at almost any time. A precautionary sonogram by Digby's OBGYN showed an unruptured endometrioma on her right ovary, which then prompted her doctor to schedule a laparoscopy, or diagnostic surgery. At age 26, nearly 15 years after experiencing her first symptoms, Digby finally had her diagnosis. She had stage 3 endometriosis. Finally, some good doctors were able to identify what was, what was going on. We'll check back with Sarah Digby later on in the show. But before we head on, I feel like it's important to ask, what causes endometriosis in the first place? As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, there's still a lot we don't really know about this disease. And although Congress has increased funding for endometriosis research over the past couple of years, it's still largely under-researched and underfunded compared to other conditions. Our next guest is Linda Griffith, a top bioengineer at MIT and co-founder of its Center for Gynepathology Research, currently the only engineering lab in the nation to focus on endometriosis. In some ways, Griffith's story is similar to Digby's. She'd always had painful periods, but it took decades for her to actually get a diagnosis. Even then, she required several surgeries to combat the disease, including a hysterectomy. And in the late 2000s, she found herself watching her niece begin to grapple with the same obstacles and frustrations. So in 2009, Griffith co-founded the CGR with the goal of better understanding endometriosis so that it can be more quickly diagnosed and more successfully treated. What struck us at the time we started to work together was the incredible diversity of patient presentations of endometriosis, the age of onset, the symptoms that they have, the types of lesions, the geographic locations of lesions, comorbidities, response or not to drugs that are already available. Right after we started working together, I got breast cancer, and I was immediately classified on a molecular basis as triple negative. So there were three markers, and they were related to the mechanism of cancer, to the prognosis, and to the therapies. Why is there not a molecular classification for endometriosis? It's so prevalent. There's got to be different molecular subtypes. So the approach at the CGR became, how do we start to classify patients by molecular mechanism with a hypothesis that patients could be different, sort of like cancer patients are different and need different therapies and have different prognoses. So that was our starting point. And this was really, really not done at the time we started. 
in doing that, we published the first two studies describing approaches to molecular classification. They're not definitive. They were small patient samples, but this has sparked other people to be thinking in this way as well. And it's something that we continue to pursue, both by looking at patient samples, but also by building little what we call avatars of the patients. We take their tissues back to the lab and we make 3D tissue engineered little mimics of the patients. And then we can start to test whether molecular things we find in our analyses allow us to intervene in drugs that are not currently in the clinic. So it's really this idea, which was novel, and now more people are thinking about that we need to classify patients because we know that they're not all the same. And we need to figure out how new drugs that are not hormones, for example, could work in different groups of patients. We know for sure, like, I guess, what causes it in the first place? So the causes of endometriosis are highly debated and speculated on, and we don't really know if there's one cause. I tend to think there's many causes. It's like if a patient shows up in the emergency room and has a smashed tibia, it could have been a motorcycle accident. It could have been a brick falling on him. It could have been somebody hitting him with a baseball bat. So there could be many things that converge on similar symptoms. And this falls in with our molecular mechanism hypothesis. There's very, very interesting data supporting many hypotheses, developmental defects, very clear data that support for some patients that during development cells can go out of the way and and get the wrong place. There's very clear circumstantial evidence supporting Samson's theory. Some people really reject this theory, but it's not been proved wrong. And there are many, many circumstantial supports for it where most women have reflux of menstrual tissue during their periods, and it goes in the abdominal cavity. Most women will clear it, but it's conceivable that some of that tissue implants and turns into lesions. That theory is not very consistent with onset at the time of menarche. We know that some girls, including myself, including my niece, had symptoms from our very first period before there was all of this reflux. And so then there's a hybrid that around the time that babies are born, In some babies, there's a little bit of bleeding seen coming from the vagina. And it's about 5% of babies tending babies born late. So there's a hypothesis that maybe bleeding, shedding of the endometrial lining around the time of birth, because you have a huge fall in progesterone, maybe that seeds the abdominal cavity with cells that came from the endometrium around the time of birth. And then when hormones surge during puberty, it wakes those cells up and they cause lesions. I think that there is credible evidence in all of those arenas, the interplay between infection, environmental exposure is still very much provocative and circumstantial and epidemiological data suggests, for example, exposure to dioxin. Animal studies implicate exposure to environmental chemicals. This may be something that affects your immune system. And now your immune system is unable to clear the tissue that goes into your abdominal cavity. So many theories and probably many of them are correct. There's probably many causes. Does the location of endometriosis, I guess, have an impact on what you experience? 
So there's not a strong correlation between lesion morphology, meaning how big the lesion is and where the lesion is, and symptoms. Some patients can have stage four, lot of lesions, big lesions, deep lesions, and have no symptoms. And I know people like that. Other patients can have one tiny lesion and be in crippling, excruciating pain. Now, those patients may also have things going on with adenomyosis. And if you haven't heard of adenomyosis, it's important to bring it up. It is when endometriosis is in the wall of the uterus in the muscle. Okay, and you don't see it during surgery, typically, and you can infer it by doing an ultrasound or MRI of the uterus, but there's no for sure diagnosis other than hysterectomy and pathology or some other interventions that involve surgery of the actual uterine wall. So some patients who are told they have stage one and feel like they have a lot of symptoms may have something else going on in the uterus that's actually a version of endometriosis that not a lot of doctors look for. We know very little about adenomyosis. And you know, just for calibration, Crohn's disease affects about 1% of the US population. And there are in PubMed, where all the scientific papers are collated and you can look them up, there are listed about 60,000 papers for Crohn's disease, which is great. It's a terrible condition. But if you look up adenomyosis, which may affect about 10% of women, so that means about 5% of the population, or definitely more than 1% of the whole population, there's only about 3,000 papers. That, that's for the whole world. That's mm -hmm. not, you know, so now you've got 5% of the number of publications for a disease that afflicts a lot more people. So this just tells you how little, you know, attention has been paid to gynecology at the level of funding agencies. What do you feel are some of the biggest misconceptions about endometriosis and are there ways we can better understand the disease? Fortunately, many of the misunderstandings are being addressed through greater awareness and things like this. I think there is something that is troubling to me as a scientist and as a patient that I see on Facebook groups. There's a particular Facebook group Nancy's nook. And there's a rejection of the idea that Samson's hypothesis, the reflux menstrual tissue is valid, a complete rejection of that. And I can understand that we want to highlight that there could be other causes. And I believe there are other causes, but it's, it's unfortunate when you throw out a scientific hypothesis without a basis for throwing it out. And, and there's a lot of misinformation, I think now being promulgated by patients who feel that they know more than the average patient, but they know far, far less than the informed clinicians and scientists who work in the field. And they're very dangerous in my view, because they promote patients to go seek care from people who may be promising them things that are not true. So if you promise a patient that excision surgery will cure them, publish the data saying that you cure patients that way. And then, then you can say that. So I think some right now misunderstandings I'd say that are really big are actually misinformation being given to patients about cures that are not backed up by rigorous data. What do you feel about the different treatments that are out there for endometriosis? And do you have hope someday for a cure? We're working extremely hard to understand what influences the symptoms that patients have and the growth of lesions. As for treatments right now, it really depends on the patient. Some patients respond 
quite well to hormonal therapies. A lot of patients respond. Some patients get great relief from the Marina IUD, for example. Other patients do need to have surgery. And in the case of surgery, there's a lot of debate about this so-called ablation versus excision. And you absolutely need excision if you have lesions that go deep into the underlying tissue. Ablation is simply burning them off. And if they're very superficial, ablation can be sufficient. However, you have to be very sure that what you see as a superficial lesion is not invading deeper into the tissue. And so I think that this is where there, again, is some confusion in the way that certain patients on social media are advocating for certain kinds of treatment when there are nuances. The reality is the number of surgeons who can perform excision surgery, especially surgeons who have been trained in a fellowship specifically. So I would highlight surgeons who have done a fellowship supported by the American Association for Gynecologic Laparoscopy are going to be trained to do the most severe endometriosis excision surgery. People may say they're doing excision and if they're not trained through a fellowship, then it's a lot less clear that they were trained with all the methods that are accepted by the professional societies to do that surgery. You don't know until the surgery happens generally what the patient's going to present with. And a surgeon who is trained to do only ablation, if a patient presents with more severe disease, will typically sew that patient up and refer them to an excision specialist. So I think we need to be cognizant that there's a spectrum of therapies that for today are adequate for a lot of patients, but some patients are still not served by those. Either they have no access to appropriate surgeons, their disease has progressed to a very difficult state, even for really good surgeons, and they may have complex pain phenotypes because some patients become changes in the brain can make the pain more severe and persistent. And this is not a fault of the patient. This is a a consequence of the disease. And one of the things we're doing is trying to work with pain specialists to start understanding differences in patients who have different kinds of pain processing in their brains. How might learning about endometriosis help us better understand, I guess, other diseases or vice versa? There's amazing opportunity to learn about other diseases, particularly the other chronic inflammatory diseases such as fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue syndrome, other chronic inflammatory diseases, including some autoimmune diseases, because inherently endometriosis is a chronic inflammatory disease something is wrong with the immune system or the body's response to tissue that's displaced. There may be connections to infection or exposure to certain things. There may be genetics. And so by understanding the relationships between the immune system and the lesions in patients, we are gaining insights into other chronic diseases. For example, we have just started a chronic Lyme disease study in collaboration with several others at MIT. And there's some fascinating crossovers between what the Lyme disease researchers see in the mice and the potential for there to be uterine phenotypes due to infection. And so there may be potentially some links between prior infection and development of disease. We don't know. There's a publication in the field that suggests certain kinds of infections predispose patients to certain kinds of endometriosis, but this is all very early studies. 
these kinds of studies will inform in general our understanding of female immunology, which by the way is very different. We have at, in our local area actually started a discussion group that meets every two months called Sex and Immunity, trying to understand the differences between the immunological responses in men and women to infection and to vaccinations. Well, Linda Griffith, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. I really appreciate it. I'm just very glad you're doing this because informed patients are going to get the best care. Once Sarah Digby was diagnosed with endometriosis, she eventually found her way to Dr. Kathy Wong, director of NYU Langone's Endometriosis Center. Wong says her office takes a holistic approach to treatment, using MRI scans and ultrasound imaging to get a better sense of each patient's individual case. She says the first line of treatment includes hormonal suppression, including hormonal contraceptives, painkillers, pelvic floor therapy, mental health support, and even acupuncture. But as Dr. Griffith mentioned earlier, there are some cases where your options are limited. If you're trying to conceive, then hormonal suppression isn't going to be the immediate option for you. If you're a more advanced case like Digby, then some level of surgery, be it ablation or excision, may be necessary. Wong says she specializes in robot-assisted, fertility-preserving gynecologic surgery. All of my endometriosis surgeries are done robotically, which means that it's minimally invasive, it's a small incision, the patients will go home the same day. And what the MRI helps us with is if the patient has endometriosis, where are the lesions of the endometriosis? So that if we plan for surgical excision, we have the right partners in the room to do it. So if the patient has endometriosis on the bladder, then we would have a urology partner. If the patient has significant bowel endometriosis, we may have a colorectal surgeon partner so that we can do one surgery for the patient and to have complete treatment for the condition rather than multiple surgeries. There are times that patients come in asking for a hysterectomy, which is the removal of uterus. And I have seen multiple reports on patients undergoing hysterectomy to treat endometriosis. And I think it's really important to stress that by definition, endometriosis is an extra uterine disease. So removing the uterus itself is not going to help patients with endometriosis unless patient also has adenomyosis. That is the only situation where the hysterectomy will actually be helpful for the condition. The other thing that we talk about in fertility preserving surgery is also not removing the ovaries. So the ovaries produce the hormones and endometriosis is a hormone responsive condition. However, if we're able to preserve the patient's ovaries, we do our best to do that because it does continue to provide androgens even when the patient enters menopause. So it gives you hormones to help you with cardiac health, bone density, sexual health, all of those things. So it's a fine line between doing definitive surgery and stripping the patient of the ovaries, and the uterus versus symptom relief.
Digby credits Wong and her gynecologist in New York for helping her get her life back. Through robotic excision surgery, Wong was able to remove more than a decade's worth of lesions without damaging Digby's pelvic organs, successfully bringing her from stage three of the disease to stage zero. While it could always come back, Digby says she keeps her endometriosis in check with regular monitoring and multiple forms of birth control. In her case, the arm implant and an IUD. And in the meantime, Digby decided to freeze some of her eggs for the future, just in case. The whole process from diagnosis to remission took Digby just a year and a half. But she can't help but wonder about those 15 years prior to her diagnosis. How might she have spent her 20s if she had received treatment as a teenager? How much grief might she have been spared if someone at her home, her school, her college, or doctor's office had noticed the signs? For Digby, spreading awareness is key to ensuring better treatment for future generations. Here's something where I just, I think back and it's just, it's wild. My mom had endometriosis. Never once did it occur to her as she saw her daughter struggling with a gynecological disease that there might be a connection there because she had been treated for endometriosis, had the surgery before my brother and I were born. But, and this is not to say that this is any of her fault at all, this society's failing, but she only had like one or two symptoms and they weren't related to her menstrual cycle. This is how this keeps happening from generation to generation. We all know what to do when somebody's in diabetic shock, get them blood sugar. We all know what to do or how to recognize symptoms of a heart attack. And yet we don't know as a society, the most common symptoms of a debilitating disease in well over 10% of the female population who could also benefit from that type of widespread awareness. And the one message I have always had for women is that pain is not normal. So if your doctor is not taking you seriously, then you need to seek another physician to get a second opinion because pain is never normal. And it doesn't need to be endometriosis. There are other reasons for pelvic pain. I mean, we recently just did a study for sexual trauma to see how often are OBGYNs actually asking women the question of, if you have pain, is there any history of sexual trauma in your life? I just think we need to talk about all these things more. It's not just a single lover problem. Even though I am a surgeon by train, I really don't think the answer is surgery alone, or nor is it always the answer. It's only seldom the answer. And even when it is, it is not the entire answer. We still need our other specialists to continue to help us, to help the patient. Again, the one message is just that pain is not normal. So if your doctor is not hearing you, please seek a second opinion. If you think you might be experiencing symptoms of endometriosis or adenomyosis, Dr. Wong advises that you contact your OBGYN and then a specialist if needed. You can learn more about endometriosis and adenomyosis online. The NYU Langone Endometriosis Center, MIT Center for Gynepathology Research, and the Endometriosis Foundation of America all have info and even webinars on their websites to get you started. As part of her own effort to raise awareness, Sarah Digby has her own collection of easy-to-share diagrams and infographics at her website, endographics.org. Before we head out, we're celebrating Women's History Month by taking some time each week to recognize prominent women in history. 
Joining me today is someone who's been on the show before. Natalie Rudd is the Learning and Engagement Manager at the National Women's Hall of Fame in Seneca Falls, New York. More than 290 women, past and present, have been inducted into the hall since the start in 1969, and Natalie's here to share a couple of them with us. Hi, Natalie. How are you? Hi. Hi, Jesse. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Who do you have for us today? Um, I have a few different women that we wanted to highlight during National Women's History Month. Um, my first is Sarah Winnemucca. She was um, a Northern Paiute author, actor, and activist. She was alive 1844 till 1897, and she was raised by an influential Paiute family, which is in Nevada. For her, being like quote unquote American was a really complicated process, especially during the late 19th century. It was a process of adopting the behaviors and languages of white people who she had often been taught to distrust, but uh, had to do that to kind of assimilate and survive. She worked as a translator, which then eventually led to her becoming an activist for Native American rights. After, in 1865, her family was actually attacked by a U.S. cavalry, which killed 29 Paiutes, including her mother and several members of her family, which then launched her into her advocate for Native American rights. So she traveled all across the U.S., basically tell white Americans about the destruction and colonization of Native peoples. And then she eventually worked for the U.S. as a messenger, an interpreter, and as a teacher for imprisoned Native Americans. She ended up publishing a book called Life Among the Paiutes, Their Wrongs and Claims. The book is both a memoir and a history of her people during their first 40 years of contact with European Americans. Um, it's considered the first known autobiography written by a Native American woman. And then eventually she returned out west where she founded a private school for Native American children in Nevada. Our next inductee is Amy Mullins. Um, so Amy has had a really cool career in that she's done literally everything. She was born with what's called fibular hemimilia. Basically, she was missing her fibula bones. And so as a result, she had both of her legs amputated below the knee when she was one years old. She was told that she would probably have to use a wheelchair for most of her life um, and probably never walk. But by the age of two, she had already learned to walk with prosthetic legs. Amy's always been about, you know, going above and beyond. Um, she ended up becoming an athlete with her prosthetics. She got a full academic scholarship to Georgetown. And there she ended up pursuing her career at the School of Foreign Service. When she was there, she earned a top secret security clearance with the Pentagon at the age of 17. Um, she worked there as an intelligence analyst as a teenager, which that alone is incredible. But simultaneously, she was running track and field for Georgetown and went on to um, compete for the NCAA Division I track and field events and was the first amputee student to ever compete in an NCAA woman or man event. She later went on to compete in the Paralympics in 1996 in Atlanta, and she helped with the design of her prosthetic legs, which are designed after the hind legs of a cheetah. So a lot of the prosthetic legs you see now, she was involved with the design process of. So that, again, alone, that alone would have been amazing. After she retired, she then went on to be a model, not only doing print, but also runway modeling. She modeled for Alexander McQueen, Kenneth Cole. She was named one of people's 50 most beautiful women in the world, as well as she's worked as an actress in both television and film. 
Uh, my favorite role of hers was she played um, Eleven's mom in Stranger Things. Have you ever watched that show? That's really cool. I've seen Stranger Things, but I didn't know that. Well, and the thing is, is they, I think what's really cool about Amy is that, I mean, especially with that role, you don't even see her prosthetic legs. She really shows that like, sometimes she highlights them in her Alexander McQueen um, runway. I guess she really, she would swap them out and they worked into the fashion. Um, whereas in that role, you literally never would have guessed they don't show them at all. So she's just a really incredible inspirational woman. And she is an advocate for like a positive approach to life. She does TED Talks. She's innovative, driven, intelligent, and absolutely is a huge inspiration for any non-able-bodied um, young woman or those who are able-bodied. Natalie Rudd is the Learning and Engagement Manager at the National Women's Hall of Fame in Seneca Falls, New York. The hall will be inducting its next class, including Indra Nui, Mia Hamm, Octavia Butler, Michelle Obama, and more, this September. That's a wrap on this week's 51%. 51% is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. It's produced by me, Jesse King. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok, and our theme is Lolita by the Albany-based artist Girl Blue. Big thanks to Dr. Linda Griffith, Dr. Kathy Wong, Sarah Digby, and Natalie Rudd for participating in this week's episode. And of course, thank you for tuning in. To catch all of this week's segments, learn more about our guests, or just the show in general, check us out at wamcpodcast.org. And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at 51% Radio. Until next week, I'm Jesse King for 51%. I was every single girl, I was nobody else, I was so sure of myself I was fifteen and a half, he was a hollow laugh And I lost my cool somewhere along the way At night and on the hallway, I had to learn how to look away I lost my cool Sweet. Man.